to get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, as an investigative journalist targets a powerful Hollywood producer accused of preying on actresses, the producer targets him back. Ronan Farrow takes us inside his expose of Harvey Weinstein in the classic podcast Catch and Kill. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and the love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. All right, Kevin. This is obviously a Crime Writers on Classic Rewind. Classic. What is coming up on next? You know, the only thing we're missing is the rewind noise. All right, so what is coming up on next Monday's brand new shiny episode of Crime Writers On? Hey, we're going to be talking about a podcast from Texas Monthly, mm-hmm. and uh, these are the folks that brought us Tom Brown's body. Yes. And this podcast is called Stevenville. Yes, more casually known as Steveville. You ruined my joke that everyone's going to hear on Monday. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. It was a good joke. I ganked it. You ganked it. I ganked it. All right. So what are we hearing in today's Crime Writers on Classic Rewind? Yeah, we're going back to December 16th, 2019. Yeah. And we're talking about our review of Catch and Kill. Wow. Remember, this started off as a TV expose yep. that got tanked and became a magazine article. Yes. Which became a book. Yes. Which became a podcast. Yes. Which became a TV show about the podcast, yes, which I think he has squeezed all the juice from this orange. Yes, he has. And yeah, uh, obviously there's other reporters at the New York Times who also yeah. did competing reporting. And there's another movie about that, a scripted movie about that. There's a lot to this uh, Weinstein story, which basically kicked off the Me Too movement, right, essentially. Right. I will say the one thing I remember about this podcast, and I'm curious to know if I talked about it or not, did I, uh, is how it sounded, because I remember it being produced with like a singular sound. This was a pineapple podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to listening to this rewind. All right. How about we do the rewind noise, and then we'll get into it. Okay. They asked me, Ambra, could you do something for us? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And... They said, um, would you want to meet them tomorrow and wear a wire? Ronan Farrow's reporting on Harvey Weinstein shook Hollywood and contributed to a cultural shift around sexual harassment and assault among men often shielded by their powerful positions. Now Farrow is giving us a behind-the-scenes take on his reporting in Catch and Kill, a podcast based on his best-selling book of the same name. The podcast, produced by Pineapple Street Media, kicks off with the story of a double agent, a private eye tasked with surveilling Farrow, but who instead reveals a massive effort to discourage and discredit his is reporting. There are whistleblowers and journalists and spies, literal spies. On the last day when we have to follow you, I get a call early. He said that he's going to do the geolocation thing with the phone. Using audio meant to memorialize his struggles, Farrow recounts in real time how executives at NBC News and NBC Universal slow walked his expose on Weinstein's rape of actresses and cover up efforts while all the time communicating with Weinstein about the story. The story of what unfolded at NBC is a case study in the power of news organizations to safeguard the truth. 
and in how devastating the consequences can be when they do the opposite. And nobody had a clearer view of that drama or was placed in a more difficult position because of it than Rich McHugh. As I said, man, we're either going to get this on the air or probably get fired. (laughs) Yep. Catch and Kill is part crime investigation, part journalism procedural. It's an inside look at one of the most important stories of the decade, giving casual news consumers a deeper dive into the downfall of one of the entertainment industry's most powerful men. Now we will be talking about plot points for Catch and Kill, the podcast. So to stay spoiler free, skip ahead to the time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, am I the only person on this panel who has actually listened to the full audiobook of Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill or read the book of Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill? I think you are. Okay. So could I just start the discussion then? Normally I'd ask a question, but I'm just going to tell you a thought and then I will ask a question. Rebecca, what are your thoughts? I, when I heard this podcast was being made, I first of all was psyched it was being made by Pineapple Street because all of their productions are, have been great. Missing Richard Simmons, uh, Running from Cops, The Clearing. So excited about that. But I also found myself wondering, what could a podcast based on a full book be other than uh, just a recounting of the book, a copy of the book? And I got to tell you, I am thrilled with this podcast. I think it is masterfully crafted to be an excellent standalone and an excellent supplement to the book. So now you guys know that. Do not be discouraged from listening to the audiobook or reading the book because you'll learn more from both that you can't get from either one. Uh, but I do want to start where the podcast starts because one of the most interesting stories that uh, happens in the, the book actually happens much later in the book. It's revealed that Igor Ostrovsky is a private eye who has been tasked with following Ronan Farrow around during his reporting. And he now becomes an interview subject for this podcast and is cooperating with Ronan Farrow and his reporting. Kevin, what did you think about the way they kicked this off? Yeah, I mean, I think we we know that this podcast is going to be primarily about Weinstein. It will probably also touch on the other big catch and kill stories that are out there, National Enquirer and whatnot. But I think it was uh, it was really smart to start with this part of the overall story because it, it does change up what we're expecting while still giving us a piece of the overall story, but not getting right into all of the um, the misconduct allegations right away. It, it it's, plants a flag saying it's going to be a broad look at what happened uh, around these stories and around the reporting of these stories. Laura, as a former private investigator, what did you think of Igor Ostrovsky and his decision that uh, what he was being tasked to do when he realized he was following a journalist around, like he just couldn't do it, and his decision to become a turncoat and cooperate with Pharaoh. Well, I loved it. But I have to say, I mean, this, you know, just to clarify, that was not the type of investigating I did. Like, it wasn't as glamorous as hiding in bushes and spying on people, which I would have loved to do because that's something I love to spy wait, on. Wait, wait. Did, did you have a public bathroom trick, though, when you were doing <laughs> your work? Did you figure out, like, that you could use a public bathroom by going into a nice restaurant, ordering yeah. a drink, and asking for a menu, what you, and wash your hands? Well, you drink specials, and where can I wash my hands? <laughs> I didn't have to do any of that stuff. So my, no, my life was not as glamorous as, as his, but I really I liked listening to this because I was, you know, first of all, the fact that this guy was like, you know, I know they're paying me, but this just doesn't seem right. But for me, it was like also 
it kicked right off from the beginning that this was just not an ordinary reporting assignment, that it was to the level that it felt dangerous. And it felt like there was a lot of risk in continuing to investigate and continuing to follow leads in this case. I just loved that, that it's like you see people who are doing the right thing in this story. And we see it later on, even in the the third episode that we're going to talk about later, somebody that did something and decided to speak up and speak their conscience instead of doing, uh, you know, what they had agreed to do. Toby, what do you think of the organizing principle of this podcast? They're taking one facet of his reporting with one character, Igor Ostrovsky, in the first episode, his producer, Rich McHugh, in the second episode, and Ambra Gutierrez in the third episode. Um, What do you think of, of the way they're putting this together instead of as one narrative as the book, you know, sort of portrayed? Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that as to why they did that. In some ways, it's good in that they all seem like kind of standalones and, you know, they're all tight. You know, you're not kind of bouncing around to different facets of the story. Unlike Kevin, I wasn't super clear as to why they started off with the PI story because there's no real context for any of it, you know? I mean, it's sort of like, oh, that's weird. And then you you find out later why this happened. And I, and I also think they probably were looking at the amount of other stuff they have out on essentially the same story between all the reporting that was done in the New Yorker, which I have read, and then the book. So it's how do we continue to tell this story in a way that's not going to seem redundant uh, for people who've consumed the other stuff. So, you know, I think it's I think it's clever. I think it works, but it is it's it's different. And uh, I'll be interested to see how the whole thing kind of plays out, because you do have these things where, you know, there are things that happen in episode two and episode three that are happening concurrently and they, they kind of have to reference back to them uh, and you have to kind of get set in your mind. OK, this is happening at this time. But, you know, I, I think so far so good. I think they're, they, they've they've got a pretty good handle on it. I want to talk about Ronan Farrow as a character in contemporary journalism I cannot remember a time in my lifetime, really, when a reporter would come out with a story and we'd hear a reporter by name. You know, Ronan Farrow was dropping something tomorrow. Ronan Farrow was reporting something tomorrow. I can't think of a single reporter, either on print or TV in my lifetime, who has achieved the level of kind of anticipation around his work. And I wonder why. I mean, there's been obviously, you know, Megan Toohey and her partner, The New York Times, did a lot of the same reporting in their book, uh, she said, is also fantastic. And there's a lot of not just this reporting, but other big stories happening in the world right now. Ronan Farrow is a star in journalism. And I think it's because he's kind of an odd guy and really leans into that. What do you think, Kevin? Well, this story really catapulted him into that sphere because... I mean, when he was on MSNBC and, and like the Today Show, he was considered a lightweight. Yeah. You know, he's doing Jeff Ross and type investigation on the investigative unit and he's doing nail salons and, you know, stuff that's not really hard hitting. And he's like, oh, he's a celebrity's kid. He's Jenna Hager Bush. Yeah. Right. But he's it, a, with he's a, a tie. He's a child genius. Right. Yeah. But all the time, regardless of what assignments he got, we see... What a hard-nosed journalist he was. You know, and I think in part NBC's reluctance to put the story on the air, their efforts to kill it, made him a legend within the story. Mm. Because by the time it got to The New Yorker, everybody's like, wow, not only is this a really great story, 
But extra textually, why didn't NBC run this story? Right. And he doesn't use the book or the podcast to really flex on NBC. Oh, he does, though. But no, no. The I, book? He, he does. Oh, okay. The book is like half about that. <laughs> I mean, no, no. He talks about it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't, at least from what I've heard on the podcast, and I, I didn't really read the book, but I, you, I did hear excerpts from the audiobook. They're not cheap shots. No. And he's not being snooty about, oh, what a horrible decision those people made. And, you know, he's not calling names, right? Mm. He's naming names. Yeah. Calling names is different. Right. He has every right to stomp on their grave, but he's not. One thing that I really loved about the book and love about this is he actually, he says over and over and over again in the book that he just, he wanted to keep his job in TV. He liked working in TV. He liked the idea of being a star TV reporter. But they wouldn't let him do real journalism, and they were stifling this story, which he knew was a story, And but he always secretly hoped they would come around, which is why he gave them so much time to kill it. Like, he didn't walk away with it initially. Like, he kept trying and trying and trying. Uh, so he admits that. And this podcast, there's one moment where he just talks about, and when I said he's kind of a weird guy, he talks about his own personality and that he's- Your Small hands? No, he does not talk about his tiny hands. I liked that part, yeah. (laughs) But he does talk about how he won't stop, like, working and he won't stop texting. I just want to play that clip. If I'm being honest, I was like, "Uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to like this guy. (laughs) You asked me to be honest. I did. I just remember you were were texting all the time, like... (laughs) What type, what you know is this right is that what are we doing and I was like I, I haven't I hadn't been used to that level of hands-on I'm sure that the producers working on this podcast who have any experience of me so far uh, are laughing at this because my work style is very much like I am so invested in every aspect of it and like very controlling and I love to be collaborative and bring in other people but I also demand a lot of involvement if so I responded <laughs> to one text like yes you'd send me like 17 more texts like okay Okay, now that you're listening, okay, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, thanks for putting up with that. Literally everyone I've ever worked with. So the other thing we find out in is that he and his producer, Rich McHugh, and I believe Ronan Farrow does this with more than just his producer, and I have reasons for believing that, taped all of their conversations about reporting the story. I'm going to play that clip right now. I think if they know that it's a long way out, then they'll probably just try and go above us and try and kill it in some capacity. Uh, right. He's just going to go to somebody else, not you. You know, some some poncho way above us. He's just going to try to find ways to, to sabotage it. I know, which he's going to probably do anyway. Um, shit. I don't know. This is a confusing one. Laura, what did you think of that? They have all of this tape of he and Rich McHugh in real time discussing what's happening with their story and what NBC is doing with it. I thought this was awesome. I, you know, I loved that we were getting this really behind the scenes window into the reporting and just the level of reporting and the level of, you know, pushing to get this story was just amazing. But hearing it as it was unfolding really kind of took you along for the ride in terms of what it was like. And, you know, I think if if you're going into this and you don't know how this ends up, this could be like some serious rage-inducing, stroke-inducing stuff to listen to because some of it is just so maddening when they're getting shut down. But knowing that in the end, the story is going to come out, the New Yorker is going to publish it, there's going to be a book, it's going to start a movement. You know, you can listen to this with sort of, I don't want to know if vindication is the right word, but like listening to this reporting that's going on that they're documenting, knowing that 
this is going to pay off. And um, wow. Um, so it was I, I loved listening to it. So I've got a question. Yeah. I don't know if he gets into this in the book, but I thought one of the interesting things was is so you have this guy who clearly is a is a very smart and dogged journalist. But what's also kind of unique about him is that he's comfortable in sort of the celebrity culture, I Mm -hmm, guess, mm -hmm. just given who his parents are. And so I don't know if he's at all reflects on the fact that in some ways his upbringing and I don't mean like his the style of his parents, because that seems a little weird. Um, (laughs) Does it? (laughs) Just a little bit. Uh, But just just the world in which he grew up in. Gave him like he talks about how oh yeah I only met Harvey once at a at a yes. you know, cocktail party yep. or something gives him a sort of entree and also understanding of that world that I don't think there's any other sort of substantive reporter working who who would have that you're right you're right and and he does talk about that the book he talks about the fact that celebrity he would he would contact them on twitter through instant message because they'd be following each other and he knew that his celebrity helped with that like that would be his sometimes his entree and he's very you know it's funny because he talks about his his parents and he by the way he does refer to woody allen as his father in in the book but he also makes reference to the pervasive and let's face it very likely true rumor that Frank Sinatra is actually his father in the book. There's like one line Just about it. Just because I look exactly alike. That's all. <laughs> There's like one line about it that's actually quite funny. When he sings karaoke. He, yeah. he addresses it in a very funny way. But um, but yeah, he does talk about that being, and he knows, he's like, the one thing that I really appreciate is he A, acknowledges he's a pain in the ass, B, acknowledges that he secretly still wanted to work in TV even though he knew it was wrong, and C, acknowledges his privilege over and over and over again. And he acknowledges that he wasn't the only one doing this reporting. He talks about the reporting of the New York Times team. His goal was to get the story out. He was not thinking like, I have to beat them. He just wanted to get his reporting out. You know, I was thinking about those real-time recordings of the phone calls of the, the you know, uh, him and his producer talking to one another. We hear an awful lot in podcasts this performative trope of, okay, let's come into the studio and I am going to tell you as the reporter what I found out. Let me tell you about my dad in journalism mm. or in um, Bundyville, uh, The Remnant. Like, guys, come in here. Let me show you what I did with these photographs. Ah, but it's still performative. These recordings are done without the intention of being part of a podcast or with the idea that they're ever going to see the light of day. Right. You know, they're just more like files and notes and memos, which makes it really interesting. And I think adds not only just this layer of authenticity, but you're more into the narrative because, bam, you get just dropped right in the middle of it. Right. I mean, I think that uh, Ronan Farrow talks in the book, and I'm sure he'll get into it more in the podcast, about his quotes, and this is in in the foreword, a lot of things are quoted verbatim in the book, and the and the question that he raises in the forward is people ask me, like, how do I know? Like, how do I have this quote? Whatever. And he said, all I can tell you is this reporting went through the same vetting as my New Yorker reporting. The quotes are authentic. I can't always tell you how much I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I can't always tell you how I got them, whatever. I actually believe he records a lot of material or, or is in the habit of 
I don't think he does it subversively. I don't think he does it illegally. New York is a one-party consent state. But I do think recording is one of the way that he takes notes. That's like his very thorough way of documenting stuff, like logging everything. I don't think he secretly recorded sources. But I do think he has aptitude for recording as evidenced by his interaction with Ambra Gutierrez. For weeks, I pressed Ambra to give me the audio. I would have wanted to give you those recordings. And of course, I didn't want to make trace of where it was coming from. And then I said, well, what if we would just record the recording? Record the recording. <laughs> and it allowed me to say she never transferred any files to me. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lara Bricker, we need to talk about this. Amber Gutierrez was a Harvey Weinstein assault victim who made a report to the police I should say alleged, probably, right? But I probably shouldn't because there's actually tape of it. Anyway. Uh, she took a million. They gave her a million bucks. <laughs> That's true. I mean. She uh, reported to her assault to the police. They set her up to do a sting. They gave her a wire. Harvey Weinstein essentially confessed on the tape. She, uh, you know, ended up having to settle. We hear what everything happens in the podcast. Ultimately, she agrees to be a source for the book. And it turns out, despite the fact that she had to give up all of her devices and all of her stuff, she had retained a secret recording of the wire that she recorded herself. Yes. And then Ronan Rivera recorded her recording. What did you think yes. about all this, Lara Bricker? <laughs> I loved it. I was like, <laughs> yes. I was like, she is awesome. I was like, she's totally awesome. Because as you're listening to this, I was getting so angry in the beginning of that episode, listening to how, you know, she was, everything was totally being turned on her. She wasn't being believed. They're trying to be like, oh, you're a prostitute in Italy or whatever. I'm like, fuck this. And then when she takes the, the money, I'm like, no, don't do it. But when this came out and she, they, she goes to this, well, they asked for all my passwords, but I had all these other emails. So I forwarded everything to myself, pretended I didn't know the password, downloaded it to a friend's computer. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then um, how they got around like the NDA by having her not give the recording to Ronan, yeah. but play the recording so that he, I was like, she, good for her. So I, I that was definitely um, sort of a very good episode at the end to kind of be like, yes, you know, power to the people and to, you know, wow, um, good for her. What's Italian for uh, password one, two, three? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know my password? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Toby, what did you think of that section? I mean, it's it's like suspenseful in that it happened, but I think that she's a really good storyteller and their their interaction with each other. It's like a two way is very often a very boring way to tell a story, but their interaction with each other to me, even though I kind of like knew what happened already, like, you know, the sort of way that they build the conversation in the podcast, but then hearing what she actually did. What did you think of that section? And what do you think of Amber Gutierrez, Toby? I thought what was interesting about their conversation is it is kind of like, they were doing this thing together. So they're sort of recalling this crazy thing they did together and how it worked out. So I thought that that dynamic was, was cool. I uh, well, I can't remember. Right. It might have been even in the comments on our Facebook pages. Somebody had said that, you know, Ronan Farrow so brave. So he said, well, he's he's really good at getting other people to do brave things. Mm. You know, not that he's not brave, because clearly in keeping with journalists who usually aren't on the entertainment beat, I mean, what he was doing was dangerous. I mean, he had people following him and, you know, I, I think he had reason to be be scared. But in this, especially in this particular case, like he manages to get her to do things that, that really kind of put her in jeopardy. 
but clearly she's brave um, and, you know, resourceful <laughs> when she loses the signal, when she's, what is she in the elevator mm-hmm. going up to the penthouse? Mm-hmm. It's like, Hey, how the hell does that happen? Mm. Like, I don't know how, how is your equipment that bad? <laughs> um, it's an elevator. Yeah. I mean, honestly, surrounded by concrete. Exactly. It happens. Yeah. Okay. I just sort of assume that you must be able to pay for something anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, black cube can pay for it. Not the NYPD. <laughs> Kevin, What do you think about dancing on the grave of the news outlet that killed what ended up being the biggest story of your career and catapulted you into stardom in your own right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I said this before, and I think that he handles it very well uh, because he could be very snide about it. And I haven't read the book, so I don't know what the tone of it is. But he he reports on that. It tells you what happened. In in an objective-sounding way. doesn't sound like he's embellishing or making unnecessary digs. We are certainly left to make the inference that they were wrong, that there wasn't enough to go over the story. And he backs it up with saying, oh, there were phone calls and emails and whatnot. And I don't know if this was in the book or whether this was just you and I talking, but certainly it seems like perhaps the leverage that Weinstein had over NBC wasn't just, oh, we have all these deals we want to do with Universal, but that he knew something about Matt Lauer. I think that's implied. Because... It all crashed at the same time. Yeah, it's implied. And it's because Weinstein had the relationship with the National Enquirer, dude. And the Enquirer has dirt on everyone. That becomes very clear. There's a whole section of the book about that dude and the vault. Oh, I hope we get to that. The Trump files and the files on all kinds of celebrities. The catching That's where the name Catch and Kill comes from, is the National Enquirer's habit of killing these kinds of stories like the Stormy Daniels story and and so forth and the Matt Lauer story was one that apparently had been caught and killed over and over and over again and then obviously NBC knew about Matt Lauer's misconduct because there had been complaints and there had been separations some quote quotes with money attached but yeah I don't think it's a coincidence personally that Matt Lauer was fired so soon after this story broke uh, Toby one quick question for you before we wrap There is an interesting thing here. I mean, obviously, we hear that Weinstein himself was on the phone with the corporate masters at NBC and NBC News, and they were giving him information and he was giving them information, which is bananas. And he was sending them alcohol as presents? Grey Grey Goose. Goose. Yes. Which you think, I mean, that's just liquor you can buy at the liquor store. It's not like super fancy, right? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, but but the, the sort of the idea of exploring that relationship between the corporate overlords and a news division, do you think that's something that you'd like to hear more about in a podcast like this, Toby? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's sort of a pervasive problem, but this is one of the more clear cut examples of the corporation telling the news division, don't do this. And if 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 breaking news was the only uh, thing that you were worried about, like there's no question you would run with this story. Again, I think it's a pervasive problem in you know certainly television news because they're all uh, all these networks are owned by bigger companies, and you know I think it's been that a case in in print journalism as well. So on that note, support your local public radio station. Support your local (laughs) ProPublica outlet. Support nonprofit news, honestly. The Texas Tribune, ProPublica, your local radio station, New Hampshire Public Radio, whatever your local outlet is, support it. 
because we don't do this shit in public media. <laughs> we just don't. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's go around the horn and let our listeners know, do you give a thumbs up or thumbs down to Catch and Kill, the podcast from Pineapple Street Media, the companion project to Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? I'm going thumbs up. Uh, You know, I haven't read the book. And so I was kind of going into this a little bit blind. But I don't think it matters if you've read the book or not. uh, Because this is just a really interesting behind the scenes look at how... Um, how this story was reported and what went into bringing the story of Harvey Weinstein out. And just there's some really badass people in this that pushed pretty hard. And I love some of the characters. So I would say thumbs up. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Catch and Kill the podcast? Yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up. I I, I was going to give it a thumbs up. But I think after our conversation, I, I think I feel better about it. <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> Sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just I kind of came in as being like, you know, it, it's definitely it's entertaining. It's really well done. But it also seemed like the third in a line of things that's coming out from this one story. Right. So that it's not the premier way that you would you would give this information because you've already done this reporting. You've done a book and now you're doing a podcast. So it's like everything's kind of trickling down to this and you're trying to figure out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's certainly an interesting enough story. He's good enough. And I, I think the concept for how they're doing it is strong enough that they make it work. Uh, the deep dives doing catch and kill uh, in April, I think. So oh. I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll sign up for that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love this podcast. I had relatively low expectations, even though I know the people making it are great podcast makers, because I figured what else am I going to learn or get from it, having completely devoured and loved the book so much. But I do think it's kind of brilliant because the book is really about reporting the story. It's about the story, but it's more about reporting the story. And the podcast is about reporting, reporting the story like it's incredible it's a layer of meta that's going even deeper his interview with rich McHugh to me really stands out because you know he talks about the rich McHugh stuff in the book but in this we hear rich McHugh talk about him you know i thought you were annoying like i think they put us together because they wanted us both to quit you know and to me it's like it's fascinating to get sort of that look into reporting to me it's like the journalism story some of the best media that's ever been made in my opinion like the all the president's men for instance uh, is about reporters trying to get at the truth and that's what this is and I I just love it I think it's a great podcast what about you Kevin well I'm a big thumbs up a thumb that's bigger than Ronan Farrell's whole hand uh, <laughs> oh it's so mean sorry Ronan he does have very tiny hands he does have tiny hands it's so cute that you look, think he's listening to this right now <laughs> <laughs> look it's, it's true that he is squeeze just about all the juice out of this tangerine but it is really good stuff it's a good tangerine it's a good tangerine it's a big okay it's a grapefruit whatever uh yeah i mean it's it's good stuff i keep thinking like this is gonna make a fantastic movie like all the president's men or the insider then i keep thinking man like a studio is probably not going to do this <laughs> because none of them have executives staffed with all saints and angels and somebody <laughs> is going to get accused of something and, uh, you know, they're going to stay away from it because, you know, it is about bad behavior, but not just bad behavior, criminal behavior. Can I just ask you a question? Yeah. If you got a message at work that Ronan Farrow was trying to reach you on the phone, wouldn't you be scared completely shitless? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think it depends on what you assume. That's true. That's I true. would not assume he was coming after me about an allegation in my past. No. I'm sure he wants me... He probably wants to call me up and yell at me for my small hands jokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but look, it's a great, great podcast. I am going to stay subscribed. I want to listen to all that he has to do. And, to, you know, wh- where it separates from the book is that we actually hear from those people. Right. We don't have to hear him doing a Ukrainian accent. That's true. <laughs> I mean, you love the accents in the audio book. I have but... mixed feelings about the accents in the audio book, but I came to enjoy them over. I just realized he had to do it. It's just, that's Ronan Farrow. He leans into his weirdness. I love it. Yeah. It's a classic podcast looking at a very important story. Wow. So, Kevin, Ronan. We haven't really heard anything in the podcast world from Ronan since, have we? My suspicion is that Ronan might be working on something. Who knows? But I think yeah, maybe... Yeah, I think it's Catch and Kill the Musical. <laughs> I think one of the things that uh, Ronan has maybe learned is that uh, when he's working on something, he should lay low. Because <laughs> those black cube people do not forget <laughs> easily or forgive. They do not. Yeah. So, yeah, it was an interesting rewind. And I think I did, in fact, talk about the way this podcast sounds. Yeah, okay, so let's be sure to uh, tune in to Crime Writers On. On Monday, we're talking about Stephenville. (laughs) All right, that does it for us. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement, where we also throw lots of shade at the National Broadcasting Corporation. NBC. On behalf of all the crime writers, except for you, Keith Morrison, and Josh Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. We will catch you later. Later.